must remember to do all the things I was told to do. That means I have to put myself on. Is that okay, George? This gives me such power. <laughs> My name is Dee, and I'm a breathing alcoholic. And since you all say where you come from, I come from California. Uh, now I come from California. I used to come from Ireland, as you can tell. Uh, I always believe in making alcoholics feel secure, so um, because we're basically insecure people. So what I'd like to do is go through this schedule with you for a second, just to kind of give you an idea of what we might be doing. And as a matter of fact, what I'm going to end up doing is telling you nothing, but um, make you feel secure anyhow. <laughs> it says 9.30 begin. And I just put the, these times down so that I'd fill that space on the left-hand side. That's really the only reason I did that. Um, what we're going to be doing, though, basically this morning is we're going to be doing the... Uh, the promises of steps one through five. And if you notice on 9.30 there, we're going to call that a new and triumphant arch uh, because that's the first promise uh, of step three. And then at 10.30, we're going to be talking about the causes and conditions. That's what led us to this day in our sobriety or in our disease. And we're going to be talking about step four and step five and talking about the promises of step four and the promises of step five. Now, uh, we're having a, uh, it looks like uh, 12.30 to 1.30 lunch, and then I guess it's 12.30 to 2 lunch. And uh, then at 2 o'clock, I call this separating the women from the girls and separating the men from the boys. Isn't that funny? Well, now, the reason that that's there is that sometimes I have somebody helping me do this little workshop. I have a priest who sometimes helps me. And what we do at that point is we have the men in one place and the women in one place, and I do the women and he does the men, and we give it to them. You know, but um, what we're going to actually the quote separating the men from the boys as you recognize is from step six in the twelve and twelve, but I'm going to do it with both of you all together. So we're going to talk about that a lot, and then we're going to do at two thirty. Some of you will recall this from last year. We're going to do a new frontier emotional sobriety, and I will give you copies of Bill W's letter on depression. And we're going to have a little look at that and see how he found a recipe for his depressions. And then from 3 to 3.30, roughly, none of these times will probably fit exactly, so it doesn't, we're real loose about this today. We're going to have easy does it. We're going to have a time that we call God time. And that means that we're going to have a little time just by ourselves with some kind of reflection, taking a look at that article on emotional sobriety and sort of mulling through it and maybe marking it up as yours and you can do whatever you want with it. And then at 3.30 to 4 o'clock we're going to have a group session and ask ourselves the question that Bill uh, talked about at the end of that letter and he said, and now my head has stopped racing. <laughs> None of you have heads that race, I know, but I do. And he said he had found a quiet place in bright sunshine after he found the recipe for his depression. So we're going to discuss that a little bit. And then we're going to do, at 4 o'clock, we're going to do uh, the promises of Step 7 and 8. And uh, you know the quota are these extravagant promises. is from page 84 of the big book. And we're d going to continue with our reprogramming. I'm going to tell you what that is in a little while. Then this evening, dinner's at 5. You go off and have dinner. And then at 5, 7.30, there will be just the regular AA meeting. And David or some of you will tell you what that means. There will be various meetings uh, here. Then on Sunday, which is tomorrow, at 9.30, we'll begin and caution... And I, I can't tell you what SDRF is because it's in your big book and you ought to know that. But um, if any of you guesses it, I'll give you a prize. 
<laughs> Nobody knows. That's wonderful. That gives me great power. And that means <clears throat> that means you'll come back <laughs> to find out, because we're curious by nature. And then we're going to take a look at the promises of that, and then um, talk about step twelve, giving it away. And then at eleven thirty, we're just going to have a kind of a quiet gratitude time, where we're going to sort of reflect on, on what God has done for us. Uh, and then I've got a little surprise for you. So. You have to come back tomorrow, is what I'm telling you. So with that, uh, as we go through the day, you can ask me questions on that if you want to, or we can clarify it as we go along. Anyway, we're not going to be too particular if we don't fall into the exact time. Now, for those of you who were here last night, I made a comment, and I'll continue to make this comment because I believe it. And I don't believe in that much. (laughs) But I believe in this. I believe that God continues to work. And... uh, I believe that God's with us here this morning. And uh, if I wanted to be funny and facetious, I could say, and I believe that she has wonderful things in store for us. I say that when I'm talking to priests and bishops. They get angry with me, and I like doing that. I like getting them upset. Uh, I work in a male hierarchical system, and every once in a while I get into terrible trouble over the things I do and say. What we're going to talk about this morning, uh, I, I want to just, give you a little focus on the whole idea of the disease and I'm not here to teach you because um, you already know this you're here because you have this disease so I'm not in the capacity of a teacher but I'm just sharing with you some of the things that have been operative in my uh, journey in sobriety what I've discovered and what I believe most of all is that uh, what a friend of mine says is that my head would destroy me completely if it didn't need me for transportation It really would. My head would kill me if it didn't need me for transportation. And what we're going to uh, make an effort to do this weekend is to do some reprogramming so that somehow our heads can stop racing and our disease can remain arrested. And this is where I have to jump around, George, so I hope this will work. Some of us come into this program. Is that working okay, George? Uh, some of us, I, I do awfully bad with microphones that people like George get upset with me, but he won't. Uh, what we come in here with is, is the G word. You know what the G word is? And you know what G, no, not, most of us don't have the G word. That, pardon? No, most of us don't have gratitude. When we come in here, what are we filled with? We're filled with the G word. We're filled with guilt. And the reason we're filled with guilt is that we don't, we have not succeeded to our innermost self, number one, that we have a disease. We just a wee bit we haven't conceded that we have a disease and uh, what we just need to look at very very briefly for a couple of seconds is that we have a disease that has three parts and the first part is that it's physical I don't know anything about this part to speak of I just know that I went crazy my whole body went crazy when I ingested this stuff into my system and uh, for some reason and I don't understand this either uh, this uh, mess up that happened inside of my system sent a message to my brain which involved itself with the mental part of the disease this is terribly simplistic for those of you who are here and know this awfully well I you know I want to put a disclaimer out immediately but I I, I like to do this just to place us in in the in the setting of the disease so first of all our disease is physical and is mental and the mental part of our disease has a sentence that it says to us all the time and it still does in a sense in some capacity or other and it says I want more 
None of you have ever said that to yourselves, have you? I want more, I need more, I've got to get more, or whatever it is, it doesn't matter, it's never enough. I never have enough of anything, whatever it is. And I will do anything I can, I will go to any lengths to get whatever it is that I need in this disease. This disease tells me I can't have one drink, or one fix, or one whatever. So I have to have more. And then I have this bright idea in my head, and I'll say, oh, I know what I'll do when I think I'm into excess in this disease. I'll start using this great thing that I thought I had, which was called willpower. Did any of you try that stuff? <laughs> and when, well, I put that in quotes, too, because we don't have that where it comes to our, our drinking and our using. And then when we found that our willpower didn't work, we got very depressed, and we went back to the physical part again. We said, oh, well, just this one time, I'll try it again, you know. So our, our heads, you know, our heads were racing, and our heads were racing, and our heads were racing. And what we didn't know about ourselves, none of this we knew, was that we had a spiritual malady. We didn't know this. And our spiritual malady <clears throat> also has a voice, and our, the voice that our spiritual malady says, our soul sickness, as some people call it, uh, it says, I can do this by myself. <laughs> in other words, I can play God, I can be God, I am God. We don't say those words, but we, we really don't want help. I don't want you to have me. I am self-sufficient. I am the higher power. So when we understand that this disease has these three components, and that we're, like, we're kind of, it's like if I were to go down here to Barbara, and I were to get her by the back of the neck like this, and I'd say, Barbara, I have you in the, I have Barbara in, it's like being in the grip of a progressive illness. And our illness gets worse and it never gets better. And what I've learned for 10 and, in, uh, well, what am I, 11 and a half years sober, and some of you are far longer sober than that, but I've learned that I have to be constantly vigilant with my head, with my disease. Because our book tells me that sometimes we can deliberately set ourselves up to get drunk. It says that, I think it's on page 37 or 39, I can never remember which one. It says, in some circumstances, we've deliberately set ourselves out to get drunk. And it, it's very clear on what that is. It says we can get into nervousness, anger, worry, depression, or jealousy and the like. <laughs> I love the way the book and the like, etc. It says, you know, that we can get into that sort of stuff. So, what I understand now about me and about the disease and about the program is that we can be in con we have to be in constant vigilance. I would never have stayed in the program with Alcoholics Anonymous if I hadn't if I didn't discover it to be constantly exciting because I like excitement I get high on excitement and this program has never gotten boring for me yet. Now the day it gets boring I won't be coming back you know I won't be around anymore but I constantly learn more and more things. You look like a very accepting kind of a group, so uh, I'm going to just tell it to you exactly like I think it is and like it is. And so what I'm going to be talking about uh, is several pieces of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I specifically want to look at page 60 in the big book, if you have it there. Yeah, I think I'm going to need it, something. Larry, can you, did you say that paper towels would clean that off a little better for me? Could you get me that, please? Thank you. Okay. 
And incidentally, as you go through this day, uh, you may have questions. And um, since I know the answer to everything, <laughs> and if I don't know the answer to everything, I'll, I'll make it up. <laughs> uh, David over here. Where are you, David? David's in charge. He's the boss of the Ascot Basket. And we have an Ascot Basket back there on the table. So if you want to um, write a, a question, you know, about the steps or the program, or just don't ask me how old I am, for God's sakes. Um, well, no, Larry, you don't have to do it to perfection, sweetheart. Would you just <laughs> I mean, <laughs> would you like to hire a cleaning service here for me? <laughs> no, because I, I just wanted to sort of, yeah, just that middle part over there. That's good. You want a board? <laughs> <laughs> See, this is great. I can have you every place I go. This <laughs> is wonderful. So, um, David's in charge of the Ask a Basket, so uh, you put your questions in there, and periodically through the day, we'll try to answer some of those questions, and if I don't know the answers, you can help me. But what I want to look at is, you know, the real heart and the real core of this disease, which our book tells us constantly is self-will run right, but we don't know that. We know that there's a physical part that upsets our whole chemistry, and we know this is a spiritual part, uh, but the whole business about self-will running right, thank you, Larry, is, is really hard. So at the bottom of page 60, if you look at that um, paragraph, it says that the first requirement, the first thing that we're going to need to understand is that we, we're convinced that any life on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, we're almost always in collision with somebody or something or somebody, even though our motives are good. Most people try to live by self-propulsion, and each person is like an actor. Now, I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to read it again, and I'll tell you why, because sometimes people don't get it. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. If his arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Now, listen to me reading this again, and it'll be a little different. Each person is forever trying to... Each person is like an actress who wants to run the whole show. She's forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in her own way. If her arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as she wished, the show would be great. Now listen to this. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show. Is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his or her own, her, her own way. If Carol's arrangements would only stay put, <laughs> if only Teresa would do as, if only people would do as Teresa wished, the show would be great. Now, what I'm inviting you to do today is to put your own name into that big book, because this big book wasn't written for them. I mean, it was, but it was written for me. And. Um, in case you're wondering about that, for those of you who might have some kind of religious background, and I have, you know, doesn't, religious backgrounds don't mean a thing to me, but scripturally, in the whole Old Testament, uh, God always calls everybody by their name. <laughs> and I believe that this program calls us by our name and invites us personally to become really involved with this program. Until I found that first secret out, I couldn't catch on to anything because I was always judging everybody else. I'm not here to judge anybody. I'm here to do this program for me, you know. And so I have to I have to keep reminding myself that this is about me trying to run the whole show. Everybody, including me, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. 
in trying to make these arrangements, be there sometimes be quite virtuous. She may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, and even modest and self-sacrificing. On the other hand, she may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. But as with most humans, she is more likely to have varied traits. So when we personalize the program and put it into, you know, what it is for us now today, that makes a lot more sense, I think, to, to me for sure. And then what usually happens, it doesn't come off or go off as well as we thought. And the quote that I used last night, am I not or is she not or is he not a victim of the delusion that we can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if he only manages well. If only I worked harder, if only, it wor- if only I could fix it to, to go exactly as it was supposed to go, then it would, it would just be fine. And so, what we get to understand through taking a look at step three is that our basic problem is what we call in the book, as we say the third step prayer, we, we call it a sort of a, a bondage, called the bondage of ourselves. And we're encased and encrusted in that bondage, whether we like it or not, most of the time. I often say that I don't think I ever had one pure motive in my life. I'm saying that because I'm standing here. I don't think I ever had a motive that didn't have some part of me in it. Real hard. And what the program does, especially through step three, is that it releases us somewhat from the bondage of ourselves and got us into some kind of a spiritual stance or mindset or awakening or where where we can be with God. The real problem continues to be described to us on page 62. And if you just look at this, I don't know if I, I think I probably did tell you this last year, but I can't remember, and those of you, many of you weren't here last year, but the very top of the page there, even though it's out of context, I think is at the heart of the program. If the rest of the world would only behave. God, if they would only do it the way they're supposed to do it. Did you ever, you never felt like that, did you? You never felt like when you're driving on the freeway that if the just would move over, if your boss would do this, if your family would do that, if, if you could just get them to do it, and, and we try in every manipulative kind of way to get them to do it the way they're supposed to, and they won't do it. Ah, isn't that awful? Now, I'm going to tell you something. Now, I'll be leaving here tomorrow, so you can talk about me when I leave. Would you do that? Just don't do what I'm here because I'm extremely sensitive. <laughs> There's a buzzword that they're using a lot of in California right now. And I didn't come to talk about this real specifically, but sometimes people in AA get very upset when I do this. So, but I'm going to do it here. (laughs) I'm going to talk to you just a wee bit about the buzzword of the 90s. Actually, it was in the 80s too, but it's really becoming the buzzword of the 90s. And it's the word codependency. You never heard it here, did you? No? No? Oh, okay. Some people in AA get upset. And as a matter of fact, in the meeting I go to, we talk about it, but we call it the C word. <laughs> well, you know what I believe now, and I found this out all by my little self when I was reading all this literature here, and I've read a lot of literature on codependency. What do you think this page 62 is about? Isn't that top line there, if the rest of the world would only behave? It's a real definition for the codependency. And what I'm led to believe is that I don't know about you guys, I don't know how you are about it, but I think my basic problem was that. I think my basic problem was that they wouldn't do it the way they were supposed to. My basic problem was codependency. And by the grace of God, oh, by the grace of God, I found alcohol. 
That's terrible, but it's true. I found alcohol. And then it brought me to the point where I needed to get some help. See? And that, I believe, is real, is real operative. Because, you see, on page 62, it talks about selfishness, self-centeredness, self-seeking, self-pity. The word self on page 62 is written 13 times. Now, you might be able to find 14 times if you do tell me, because I'm always trying to, do the, to find out new things about this. But what it basically says is that we alcoholics are an extreme example, example of self-will run riot, though we don't think so. And we have to get rid of this selfishness, and only God can make that possible. And God will help us to get rid of our self-centeredness. Self, self we can't do it by ourselves. And then the famous last paragraph on page 62, it says, B, and put your own name in there. Put your own name. Jane, Mary, whatever your name is. David, Bob, Robbie. This is the how and the why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God because, you know what? It didn't work. It doesn't work. And next we decided that hereafter in this drama of life that God was going to be our director. And he's the principal and we're his agents and he's the father and we're his kids. We're his children. And it says to me, most good ideas are simple, B. And this concept was the keystone, this keystone of the new and triumphant art through which you, V, are going to pass to freedom. But remember that if you complicate it, you probably will miss it, because I tend to complicate everything. The first promise of step three is at the bottom of page 62. Many of you found that out before. The first promise is that if we let go and we let God, and we, we let God be God instead of us playing God, which is, as far as I know, the original sin, <laughs> that if we do that, then we would be able to discover the keystone of the new and triumphant art through which we will pass to freedom. I like to put these promises in the present tense because I believe that they were written to be operative for me now, today. And I think our founders uh, wanted us that to happen too. The second promise of step three is that when we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. I think that's real classy. You know, remarkable things for me is when I get a good night's sleep when I got last ni- that I got last night. A wonderful night's sleep. God, no interruptions, no telephone calls, nothing. Wonderful. Uh, no anxiety attacks. No waking up at 2.12 with cold sweats and dying for a, a drink. That's remarkable for me to... Remarkable. Remarkable for me to be able to arrive yesterday at Dallas Airport and appreciate the beautiful Lady Carol here who met me with a flower and some lemonade. God, a drink. <laughs> you know, she brought a drink for me to the airport. Isn't that great? Now, that's classy. You know, I mean, that's real classy. And then we talk, 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 go in the traffic, out of the traffic. You know, we just talked the whole way back. I've known Carol since last year. And then another time I, I flew into Dallas, she and a friend of hers came out and met me in Dallas when I had a little time to spend here. I go through Dallas a lot, by the way. I go through Dallas a lot. So I'll be calling you up to meet me and talk to me when I'm dying over there in that airport. It's a terrible airport. Lost all over the place. But to be able to appreciate that, that's remarkable for me. To be able to notice, you know, that, that, that that's happening. 
for him to get up this morning bright and to swim in a freezing cold pool. And love it. And say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for the air and the sun that came this morning. Thanks be to God for your faces and your energy and your life and all that's going on inside of you. And, you know, um, I, I believe that life is a combination of, of human beings who are permeated by some kind of sustained energy, which I believe comes from a higher power. And there's a lot of sustained energy here. I feel a lot of energy. And for me, even to know any of that is a remarkable thing. And to be able to feel it and appreciate it. So that's the second promise. Then the third promise is that we have a new employer. We're no longer our own employers. <laughs> or we're no longer really subservient to another kind of an employer. God's the one that's in charge of it all, everything. God's in charge of our jobs, our families, our relationships, our little things, big things, in-between things. God's in charge of the whole thing. And this interesting part about this higher power, this God, is that he happens to be all-powerful. And he'll provide what we need if we keep close to him and perform his work well. I used to think, now, I wonder what that means, performing his work well. But what I know now is that, oh, this works like a charm. What I know for me is that God's work for me is basically to stay sober. Now, when I say stay sober, I mean not drinking and not using any kind of drugs. Basically, bottom line, that's what that means. But for me, it also means that I stay comfortable, that I stay fitting in my own skin. There's a great difference, I think, between staying dry and staying sober. You know? Uh, we can just not be not drinking. I did that lots of times. I would swear off it. I, d- I do that lots of times in sobriety, just into dryness great difference between being life-giving, being awake and alert and conscious and sober and experiencing the joys of living. And I believe that that's what God wants me to be. God wants me to be sober. And sober for me means experiencing life, being comfortable. Now, I'm not comfortable 24 hours of any day. I'm really not. Because things happen to me. I go to the bank. I think I told you this last year and it's gotten worse. I go into the bank. Um, And you know what they do in the bank in California? They're always training a new girl. They are always training you Honest to God, this happens to me all the time. And she always has long earrings and she has, you know, long eyelashes and she has long hair and she's cute as a button. But she doesn't know anything, folks. God, she doesn't know anything. And I'm standing in line, L-I-N-E line, and I'm always in a hurry, you know, and I have to wait. And when I get to her, and we've been going to that same bank for 25 years and we have very little money in it, but we go there anyway, and um, she asks me, this new girl, every week, every time, asks me the same question. And she says to me, ma'am, do you have an account here? <laughs> Ooh, that's called agitation, you know? Now, I'm talking about handling life, you know? And that's what I think staying sober means, being able to handle life. This happened to me just the other day, again. It happens to me all the time in the bank for some reason. And, uh, and the post office, too. That's another place. And um, she said to me, after I didn't tell her how to run the bank, um, and I waited, and I breathed in and out, and I said the serenity prayer, and I said the third step prayer, and I hung on to my nails, and I had big marks on my, thing, on my hands from my nails, digging into my hands, oh God, please don't let me disgrace myself in public and take, uh, you know, just tell everybody here how, how to do it and what to do and where to put it, etc., you know. 
And when I got to her, she said, thank you very much for your patience because I knew. Well, I knew she was new because they're always new. <laughs> and, um, and so then because she looked so terribly forlorn and lost and all, then I immediately became her mother, you know. <laughs> I told her what to do and I said, now just do everything they tell you to do. Just go through all the procedures. I, I suddenly then became my total codependent self. Now, that's a silly little example, but I'm telling you, staying sober means like doing living, doing life, you know, doing life with some kind of grace and some kind of class. And so uh, the, the, the promise is that God will provide me what I need if I, if I stay close to him, conscious contact, and perform his work well. And his work is to stay sober and to carry the message. Now I get to carry the message formally in a way like this. And you get to carry the message formally and informally. You get to carry the message by service. You get to carry the message on your jobs, in your homes. Uh, I get to carry the message when I work with my bishop, and I could call him another name, but I won't because this is on tape. <laughs> Sometimes he doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, but and I think I should tell him. You know what I mean? I should tell him. And uh, when, when, I can, when I can be graceful and classy and behave myself, like my sponsor and says, be all you have to do today is behave. <laughs> Big, that, that's what an order. I can't go through with that. <laughs> hard. Really hard. Anyway, that's the, one of the promises of step uh, three, that, that he's going to perform, he's going to do whatever it is that I need. He's going to perform what it is if, if I do his work well and I stay sober and carry the message. A miracle happens in this other promise. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves. We're encrusted naturally and basically in the bondage of ourselves. And if we can move out of that bondage of ourselves even slightly, it's a miracle, I believe. And our own little plans and designs. Did you ever do plans and designs in your heads and results, you know? Your little uh, plots, you know, different from real plots. Oh, and it thickens as the day goes on. And as the night sets in, boy, it gets good. Plot. You're going to get him and get her, and you're going to say this, and you're going to say that, and then I'm going to fix this, and then they're going to move there, and then we're going to put this over here, and then I'll probably do our little plans and designs. We get out of that, the book promises us. And then we become more and more interested in what we can contribute to life, how we can give instead of, uh, instead of get. That's not natural to us. And then what happens is that we start feeling this new power flowing in. Now remember, I'm inviting you to put this into the present tense because I firmly believe that's what our founders meant, that we would use this to, to work for us, not something that happened way back in a historical event. Yes, it was an historical event, but this book is for me and my sobriety today, you know. So what I have to do is let myself feel this new power flowing in. Joy and peace of mind, good night's sleep, you know, my head's not racing. I'm not out to get anybody. God, that's a miracle. And I discovered that I can face life successfully. That's a good one. You know, because they always knew whoever they were that I could. I didn't know this, but they did. Did you ever hear your parents or your teachers or somebody saying to you, you're not performing according your, to your potential? <laughs> that awful word, whatever the heck potential is, I'm not sure. But you know, they were always telling us we never did it exactly. We never quite measured up. And we always believed that. And some of us still do. And what this promise is, is that we discover, the, the, the most important word in that whole sentence is that we do it. We discover that we can face life successfully. Because they always knew about us. 
Then you had a lot of drive and a lot of success. We could do stuff and we could get things done. Usually we're go-getters in AA. We're usually a lot of go-getters here. But we didn't know that about ourselves because our self-esteem was so low. We didn't have any, no confidence, no self-esteem. We became conscious of God's presence not only when we were in big trouble, but all the time at different times we were able to appreciate things and understand things. And then we began to lose our fear of today and tomorrow and the hereafter. That's a marvelous promise to be able to lose our fear, God. When we start doing step four later this morning, we'll talk a little bit about what that does to it. It talks about it being the corroding thread that's shot through the fabric of our being. This fear, the nameless, groundless fears, and we don't know what they're from. We don't know why. Sometimes we wake up in the morning with them, or sometimes we're, everything's going fine. Suddenly we're in fear. God, what a word. It grips us. Now, this day, this morning, I'm going to be teaching you the fear prayer on page 68. It's a really wonderful, wonderful prayer. But anyway, there are 13 promises in step 3. And I believe that there are no accidents. I believe that there are no coincidences in this program at all, no coincidences at all. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to break up into groups. And I'm going to give each of you a promise of step 3 that I, those of you here last year will, will know that I did this. And in this little envelope, there's a promise of step three. And on the top of your uh, envelope, there's a number. Tricky, huh? And whatever your number says, that means that that's the group you're in. David, would you tell everybody who the group facilitators or leaders are? And uh, if you could possibly then um, tell them where the, the places are. Um. <coughs> Generally, two groups will meet in this room, one in this east room, one in the Alateen room, which is back here, one in the non-smoking room here, and one in the lounge. Uh, the Alanon room will be kept open for our regular meetings. It'll be ongoing during the day. So uh, let me introduce our facilitators for each of the groups. Uh, uh, those with the number one and the, uh, will be with Sana. Sana, will you stand? And that'll be back in this area where Sana is of this room. And those with number six will also be in this room. And that's Robbie. Robbie, will you stand? And Robbie's group will meet over in this area near George over here. Uh, those with number two will be with Kelly. Kelly, where are you? Kelly's, Kelly's in the non-smoking room, and that's where her group will meet, in the non-smoking room. Uh, those with number three will be with Carol. Carol, stand up. And Carol will be in the lounge, uh, back in the, our lounge. Those with number four will be with Theresa. Theresa, back here. And Theresa's group, number four, will meet in the Alatine room uh, behind here. And those with number five will be with Grace. Where's Grace? Grace, okay. And Grace's group will meet in this room here, this east room on this side. Uh, since there will be a mixture of smokers and non-smokers in these groups, we ask that the discussion meetings will be non-smoking, if you would uh, mind refraining from smoking just during the uh, discussion meetings. Otherwise, uh, smoking is permitted in here, as you know. So, uh, But if you would, just refrain to mix the non-smokers and smokers. It makes it easier, so we'll do it that way. Okay? Okay, David, thank you. Now, I'm not through with my announcements yet, so can you keep in mind where you're supposed to be and if you get lost? Don't worry, because we'll tell you. And uh, at the end of the group session, what I'll do is, like I did last year, I will 
Let me see if I can find this now. Go around with this little bell and tell you that I need you back to order here, which is in the large group again, okay? Um, so you know it's over. I kind of have to sort of play this by ear according as the group is going. Now, you're going to be doing three things in your group, and your group facilitators are extremely well-trained. We had a training session last night, very lengthy training session, and uh, they know exactly what they have to do. The first thing they do is you'll be praying, you'll say a little prayer together, maybe the serenity prayer or the third step prayer, whatever you want to do. And then the second thing you'll do is you will share whatever promise that you got out of this little envelope. And the facilitators happened to get this ahead of time, so I hope they didn't look last night. Robbie, are you sure? I don't trust, he's a Catholic priest, you know that, don't you? Father Robbie? <laughs> You didn't tell. Uh, he dresses like one. That's why I thought you were one. Um, <laughs> so um, you uh, you will get your little promise in there from the third from the third step. Now, this is where I want you to listen very hard. I told you that my mind was out to get me or would destroy me if it didn't need me for transportation. So it's really important to me that I continue to reprogram my mind. And so what I want to talk to you a little bit about now before you do this, I want to talk to you about the idea of formulating affirmations. Have you ever heard the word affirmations before? Where you affirm yourself, you affirm yourself, and if you keep affirming yourself enough and saying a positive statement to yourself using an I message, I do this and I, whatever it is, I enjoy peace of mind, I am conscious of God's presence, I can face life successfully. I am losing my fear of today. I am losing my fear of tomorrow. You know, and, and, and formulating an affirmation. That way, I can start changing what goes on between my ears. And so in your groups, the third part of your group is that on the large sheets of paper, Teresa, she has a, under her chair here, each group leader will have a large sheet of paper and some marking pens. So you're going to formulate, using the promises of step three, some affirmations, maybe two or three or five or ten, you know, using whatever you want. Now, if you get stuck on that or if you're not sure exactly how to do that, I want you to be moving around the groups, and your facilitators will help you. And when we come back, we want to put these affirmations around the place so that we can see them. And then I want to collate all these affirmations for you and let you have them all at the end so that we'll be able to have something to hold on to. We'll be doing all the affirmations out of the promises of the steps. But uh, I've never done this with a large group before, so I want you to be my guinea pigs. So will you do that for me? So we can get all these affirmations together. Now, I'm going to pass out these promises, so I'm going to need some help. Um, thanks, David. Ray, could you go next door uh, to the room next door, please? Thank you. And to do with me now with step three is to recite with me the third step prayer together. And if you don't know that prayer, it's on page um, 63, yeah, 63, the middle of page 63 in the big book, but I'm sure most of you probably know it. Now we're going to do this a little differently. We're going to say it exactly as it is, but if you could think of it like this. Think of the God of your understanding, whether that's a power or a force or a person, like a father, the God of my understanding is like a father God, a 
God who provides everything I need, a God who has a wonderful sense of humor, and who doesn't let me take myself too seriously most of the time, even though I tend to, and a God who, who might be answering me back. So we're going to say the prayer kind of slowly. For example, could you imagine what God might say to you if you said, God, I offer myself to thee. What do you think God would say? God would say, I'm delighted. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? To build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. God might say, really? You sure? You mean that? Anything at all you want? I mean, anything that, that I want to do with you, you let me do. And if you were to say, relieve me of the bondage of self, I think God would say, my pleasure be. <laughs> love to. I'd love to take away the bondage of yourself. Because all I want for you is to do my will. And if I were to say to God, take away my difficulties and name them. You know, all the things. Gosh, all the difficulties. And God would say, you know, they're really nothing. They're, they're nothing in comparison to the fact that I love you and you're my kid. And I'd be delighted to take those away for today. Uh, is this the Cinco de Mayo today? So God only does the, you know that he only does one day at a time. Did you know that about God? He never does Sunday before Saturday. It's terrible. I wish he would, but he never does it that way. So I'm just using that for reflection because that has helped me a lot when I'm saying, saying the third step prayer. Um, instead of rattling it off, to think, what would God be saying back to me? So we're going to put ourselves in the presence of this higher power, this God. And so let us recite together the third step prayer to put closure on that first part of the morning. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I will have. Have power thy love and thy way of life. May I do now and always. When I, when I say that prayer and mean it, uh, I always have the image of, of God wanting to do a dance after, after I do it. You know, I say, oh, at last she surrendered, you know. What we're going to move into now uh, are the promises of steps four and five. And as you know, step four is all about taking inventory and taking a look at ourselves. And uh, uh, step five is about uh, giving away the inventory and um, getting rid of that. What I would like to just point out to you, which you well know, is that built into our disease is this word called denial. Uh, we, we really would prefer, well, before we got sober, we would have preferred to call it another name. I was hoping that maybe I had cancer or something, because it would be a little bit more respectable than alcoholism. Alcoholism was the worst word that I could think of in the English language. And so I would have called it anything else. And interestingly enough, built into me, because my disease is part of me, built into me, is this whole denial system still. And so I would prefer to believe that, oh, no, it couldn't be that. It, it's not. Not this time. It's called something else. You know, somebody says to me, well, that sounds like resentment. I say, oh, no, no. 
this needs to be said for her own good. You ever do that one? This is the end of side one. Well, I'm going to entertain you for a moment, and I don't think I read this book to you last year. Did I? Can you remember, Teresa? It's called There's No Such Thing as a Dragon. Didn't read this. Oh, I found this since last year. This is a good story. Now, if you're good, I'll show you the pictures. <laughs> and um, I'll try my best to show the pictures over there to the Kelly's group. Now, listen hard. This is a great story. Billy Bixby was rather surprised when he woke up one morning and found a dragon in his room. It was a small dragon, just about the size of a kitten. The dragon wagged its tail happily when Billy patted it on the head. I used to teach second grade. Billy went downstairs to pet his mother. There's no such thing as a dragon, said Billy's mother, and she said it like she meant it. Billy went back to his room and he began to dress. The dragon came close to Billy and wagged its tail, but Billy didn't pat it because if there's no such thing as something, it's silly to pat it on the head. Billy washed his face and hands and went down to breakfast. The dragon went along, but now it was bigger. In fact, it was almost the size of a dog. Billy sat down at the table, but the dragon sat down on the table. This sort of thing was not usually permitted, but there wasn't much Billy's mother could do about it because she already had said that there's no such thing as a dragon, and if there's no such thing, you cannot tell it to get down off the table. <laughs> mother made some pancakes for Billy, but the dragon ate them all. And Mother made some more, but the dragon ate those too. Mother kept making pancakes until she ran out of batter, and Billy only got one of them but he said that that's all he really wanted anyway. Poor codependent little Billy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Billy went upstairs to brush his teeth and Mother started clearing the table and the dragon, who was quite as big as Mother by now, made himself comfortable on the hall rug and went fast asleep. And by the time Billy came back downstairs, the dragon had grown so much that he filled the hall. Billy had to go around by way of the living room to get where his mother was. I didn't know the dragons grew so fast, said Billy. There's no such thing as a dragon, said Billy's mother firmly. Cleaning the downstairs took mother all morning, what with the dragon in the way and having to climb in and out of the windows to get from room to room. Now we have a big dragon. Yeah, getting bigger all the time. By noon, the dragon filled the house. Its head hung out the front door, its tail hung out the back door, and there wasn't a room in the house that didn't have some part of the dragon in it, just all over the place. When the dragon awoke from his nap, he was hungry, and a bakery truck went by. The smell of the fresh bread was more than the dragon could resist. The dragon ran down the street after the bakery truck, and the house went along, of course, like the shell on a snail. <laughs> The mailman was just coming up the path with some mail for the Bixby's when their house rushed past him and headed down the street. He chased the Bixby's house for a few blocks, but he couldn't catch it. When Mr. Bixby came home for lunch, the first thing he noticed was that his house was gone. Luckily, one of the neighbors was able to tell him which way it went. Mr. Bixby got in his car and went looking for the house. He studied all the houses as he drove along, and finally he saw something that looked familiar. Billy and Mrs. Bixby were waving from an upstairs window. <laughs> Mr. Bixby climbed over the dragon's head and onto the porch roof and 
through the upstairs window. How did this happen, said Mr. Bixby. It was the dragon, said Billy. There's no such thing, Mother started to say. There is a dragon, Billy insisted. A very big dragon. And Billy patted the dragon on the head. The dragon wagged its tail happily. Then even faster than it had grown, the dragon started getting smaller. And soon it was kitten size again. I don't mind dragons this size, said Mother. But why did it have to grow so big? I'm not sure, said Billy. But I think that it just wanted to be noticed. Got it, huh? My people around here. I think that that kind of is what happens to us in step four and step five. I think that we can build step four and five tremendously out of proportion. And I think when we pay a little bit of attention to whatever is happening inside of us, which the book helps us to do rather well, I think that um, it, gets a, it, it gets into kitten size again. And uh, we, we learn, you know, that we just have to pay attention and take notice to whatever it is that's bugging us or what our defects of characters, uh, characters might, char defects might be. In the back of our book on page 544, there's a, which I won't, I'm just telling you this, it's not for looking at right now really, but there's a story. It's called Freedom from Bondage. And the writer of that story, who seems to be a woman, she talks about the causes and conditions that lead up to that moment. And that's what we need to do when we're looking at step four. Uh, when we're new in the program, and some of you, how many of you in this uh, group now, under a year? If you, this is a very personal question. Don't answer it if you don't want to. How many of you have not yet taken step four? Few. Well, a lot of you have. Okay. Uh, when we're doing step four before we take our initial step four, and I have had to find from my life and my sobriety that I've had to take more than one step four because my first one was awfully shallow. And uh, I was very particular that my sponsor would recognize how clear I was and how well I wrote and you know I bought about six notebooks and different pencils and pens and I really wanted to impress my sponsor but I found <laughs> I find as I grow in my sobriety that more is revealed and I've just finished taking another fourth and fifth and I've done that about three or four, well, about four times I think in sobriety some people like to do it once a year um, but whatever it is for you anyway when we think of step four, though, whether we're thinking of taking another one or whether we're thinking of taking our first one, usually the first thing that comes into our heads is what? Fear. Fear because we have to be telling somebody about what? About what in ourselves? Our defect. What defect? Come on. What's your biggest darkest secret? You're no different from the rest of us. It's all about sex, right? <laughs> Tell me the truth. You all think of sex when you think of step four. You're just like everybody else I know, right? That right in there, too? Good. Okay. Well, I want to draw your attention to the book. And the book is kind of wise. Uh, I, I always get a lot of attention. Well, I should have told everybody last night I was going to be talking about sex this morning because everybody always comes back. Um, <laughs> What the book does, though, it has, it puts everything in kind of in order. It says that there are three areas that we need to look at. 
And the first one isn't sex, interestingly enough. It's the last one. The first one is resentment. And I could, you know, you know how to find this. I'm not going to insult your tremendous intelligence on all of the stuff that you have here. But I'm just going to comment on the fact that this is mentioned so many times in the book and is mentioned as being the greatest, the number one offender, that if we're into this, that we're shutting ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit and that we'll drink or use again and that as a result of that we could die. And even if we don't die physically, we, can die, we will die spiritually. We cut ourselves off from any kind of spiritual growth. It comes, as some of you might know, uh, from two Latin words. This is the verb to feel in Latin. Sentire. Some of you old altar boys or whatever might remember that. Uh, to feel over again. To, to re-feel. Uh, to rehearse, as, as Dr. Paul O. says, to rehearse for retaliation. To practice. You know, to get into something again, not to get rid of it completely. When it comes up, and it comes up, and it comes up. Uh, I found this the other day, and I thought it was kind of cute. It says, an Irish prayer, maybe some of you have read this. It says, may those who love us, love us. And those that don't love us, may God turn their hearts. And if he doesn't turn their hearts, may he turn their ankles, so that we know them by their limping. <laughs> That's called resentment, folks, <laughs> if you're wondering, you know. Where we're really wishing ill to somebody else. We really don't want them to get whatever it is that's coming to them in the world except for bad things. In our book, uh, it's, you know, it it's talks over and over and over again about that we must get rid of it. And I could go on here forever talking to you about resentment. But there are some promises in the big book which are very interesting that tell us what happens when we are sincerely trying to take care of our resentments? They're on page 64, I believe, and I think the first one is, says that we get spiritually and mentally straightened out. I believe it's 64. I just have it jotted down here, so I, I think it is. Yes, in fact, it's at the bottom of page 64. It says, when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. That means that our mind stops racing. We're no longer rehearsing for retaliation. We're enjoying some peace inside of our heads, peace of mind, sleeping better, all of that mentally. And we're looking better. We look better. And I notice that with people who come into the program. When we come in first, you know, we're all scrunched up because we're full of all this thing and we're just filled with guilt and remorse and fear. And we're into a lot of resentment and we're resentment be, into resentment because we don't want to be in AA or we don't want to be alcoholics or we're resentful because they didn't do it the right way and we have things with parents and things with spouses and things with kids. And it's, it's very messy. But as we get rid of our resentments, we start straightening out. And you notice people physically changing. I've seen that happen in the program. People physically changing. Do you see that ever? Their eyes lighting up and their skin is clearer. They're smiling more looking better. There's sort of a joy of living about them. It's wonderful. And there's another promise. That's the first promise is that we straighten out physically and mentally. And another one is that um, on page 66, that is, I think at the bottom of the page there, where we kind of recognize the fact that people around us were sometimes spiritually sick. We didn't like their symptoms and the way they disturbed us, but they were sick too. I love that. I love when the book makes a concession to the fact that we're not all wrong all the time. Don't you like that? 
you know that there are assholes out there, folks. Yeah. <laughs> God, there are. There really are. I love this promise because it says, we ask God to help us to show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that he would cheerfully grant a sick friend, that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. And I think what happens is that, that I go to my God, my Father, and I say, God, you know, so-and-so is an asshole, whether you believe it or not. And God says, I know, B. I know. They are. They're, you know, they're not too well-wrapped. They're not the full shilling, as we say in Ireland. And... Um, then I say, could you, God, could you help me to show this person the same tolerance and pity and patience that I would cheerfully grant a sick friend? And please keep me from being acting out my anger. That's what that really means. And God, may your will be done. And then in the second paragraph there it says, we cannot be helpful to all people, but at least God will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. That's the promise. But God says, yes, B, I'll teach you. I'll teach you. And I believe that my father takes me by the hand and, and maybe points out to me somehow, sometimes the good qualities in the person. And um, I don't know how you get rid of your resentments, but mine don't go away overnight. Mine lasts a long time. And it takes a, a long, hard, it's a long, hard road to get through. We'll be talking about this later today when we do, we talk about the amend steps, steps eight and nine. But it's a long, hard road. But I think that we need to address ourselves to that constantly, to resentment. Because uh, I always think it's gone forever. And you know what? It pops up just like a little puppy dog here at my feet. And it doesn't even ask my permission. It's just to say a happy Christmas or happy Halloween or happy Easter. You know, and I wonder, well, where did that come out of? I thought, I was taking, I thought that was all taken care of. And it comes back again. So we have to keep addressing it. But the two promises are on, st on page 64 and 67 for resentment. And then we uh, look at the, the second problem in step four, which is fear. There are three areas. And the book tells us on page 67 that it's the evil and corroding thread, I think it is, or maybe it's not on page 67, somewhere around there. Uh, is it 67? Okay. Yes, it's the evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. And that's the kind of fears that we don't know what they are, where they came from, why they're there, or who started them, or why we're thinking this way. Or We wake up with it. And I, I overheard somebody saying in a group this morning that, Fear leaves rather slowly. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't go away forever either. It keeps, you know. And, and fear sometimes can be all residue of our past, you know, depending on what kind of a family we came from, what kind of responsibilities we did or didn't have, and all the things, you know, old ideas, even good old ideas that we have to start getting rid of, which is what we're trying to do today. We're trying to formulate affirmations so that we change our programming in our head. We reprogram what goes on in here. We can use these mantras or affirmations to, to free ourselves of the things that really get in our way. And then we review our fears. We write them down and, and we figure out, <laughs> the book tells us this, but it's interesting, I always think to me, that our biggest fear of all, the biggest fear that any of us ever has is that the fear that self-reliance will fail us. 
Am I going to look silly? Am I going to look foolish? Is it going to work for me? Am I going to be... What, what are they going to think? What are they going to do? What's it going to come out like? Fear of the future. Fear of the results. A real codependent problem. Fear of what it's going to look like. And then there's a better way the book tells us because we trust infinite God rather than our finite selves and we're in the world to play the role he assigns and just to the extent that we do as we think God would have us do and humbly rely on him and here comes the first promise of step four of, of fear he enables us to match calamity with serenity now isn't that, a, isn't that classy imagine all of the calamities that happen to you in your drinking or using days and he's able to match all that calamity with serenity God can do that and then we're asked not to apologize for God and you know we we do we we just believe that God can do for us what we can't do for ourselves and we let him demonstrate we let God show through us or show off through us what he can do and then we do the fear prayer very interesting prayer this it says uh, we ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be and then at once we commence to outgrow fear. And this is how I do the fear prayer. I say, first of all, I have to name my fear because I believe that if I don't name it, you know, God wants me to, to put my, to be conscious of it. To try to figure out what's that fear of? Is it fear I'm going to lose something that I already have? Or that I'm not going to get something I don't have? Uh, what, I'm afraid they're going to think ill of me. Um, is it my ego that's in the way? What is it I'm really afraid of? And if I can hook out out of my insides what I'm afraid of and try to put a name on it and I usually cannot do that by myself I need help from my sponsors or from the group or whatever I need to ask somebody usually what am I afraid of and then if I can put a name on it then I say to my God God Father would you please remove my fear now this language here direct my attention to what he would have me be I don't know that he would understand that I, I, the God I have is a very familiar God so I say God what kind of a woman would you want me to be what do you want me to do? What, do you, what kind of a woman, God, do you want me to be? And if you're a man, you say, God, what kind of a man would you want me to be? And listen to what he might want to be saying to you. And then the promise comes, at once, pronto, at once we commence to outgrow fear. Isn't that great? But I believe that it doesn't go away unless we do that, unless we do it exactly as it's designed, you know, unless we name it, say it out loud, ask God to take it away, and then ask God, what kind of a person do you want me to be? You know. And I believe if God were answering me when I say, what kind of a woman, God, do you want me to be? God would say, um, I want you to be warm. And I want you to be loving and caring. I want you to stay sober. I want you to be a happy woman. I want you to be sharing. You know, th think of that. What kind of a woman, God, do you want me to be? And what kind of a man do you want me to be? And I love this book. You know, God forgive me for uh, rewriting it. But um, I did anyhow. But I love the way this is written. On page 68, you know, it's fabulous, the way it goes. It says, um, it doesn't mince words at all. Somebody's calling, David. It says, and now about sex. You know, it's, it's kind of like the book is saying, I know you've been wanting to hear about this all along, 
but uh, now we're going to do it finally, you know. And now we're going to talk about it, it says. And it, it cautions us not to be uh, unsensible about it. It says, you know, we're trying to be sensible about this because it's so easy for us to get off the track and we find that there's two opposite opinions. There's the real extreme people and the real uh, rigid people and then there's the people who are what I call low-lifers, you know, who don't have any conscience at all. But what it's real consoling about on page 69 is that I heard somebody doing this the other day at a retreat I was giving with a priest friend of mine, and we both we give this together. And this is the way he describes it. He says, on 69 says, we all have sex problems. And then he stopped for about three minutes, or three seconds, I mean. And then he says, we all have sex problems. And then he says, we all have sex problems. And then he said, we all have sex problems. It's very interesting. In other words, it's none of us gets off of this. It doesn't matter if you're celibate for 40 years like me, or if you're in a relationship or out of a relationship or in between a relationship or whatever. We all have sex problems. And the book consoles us by saying, We'd hardly be human if we didn't. Isn't that grand? Now, what do we do? We ask God to, to look at certain areas, and we, we ask God that we can. We review this, and we always do our reviewing of our conduct with God. And what we're asked to do is to look at selfishness, dishonesty, and inconsiderateness. We're asked when we arouse jealousy and suspicion and bitterness. And what we do is we ask God to... Look at our attitude. What attitude do we have behind all of this? If our attitude is one of love, and it's one of meaning well, and wishing well, and wanting well for somebody else, then we let God take care of that. And above all, folks, above all, and this is, this is hard in AA, but I need to say this. It, it says in the book that we can't set ourselves up. We can never set ourselves up to be the judge of anybody else's sex conduct. We can't do that. Only God can do that. That's God's business. We don't know. We don't know what anybody's doing, what their background is, what happened here, what didn't happen there. We don't know that stuff, and it's not our business. So we have to move ourselves out of the situation, uh, as it says in the book, to be the judge or the arbiter of anybody's sex conduct. What we do is that we go to God, like we do with the fear and with the resentment, and we ask God what it is that we would need to do. And the promise is, at the bottom of page 69, the right answer will come if we want it. Now, the operative part of that sentence is, if we want it. A lot of times we don't want it. We don't want to hear the truth. And at the bottom of the page again, it says that God alone can be the judge of our sex conduct. God's in charge. If we've left up in our sex lives, and we've made some tremendous mistakes, which can happen, uh, we believe that uh, God can, can and will take care of that too. We believe that we will be forgiven and we will have learned a lesson. That's our second promise of, of uh, sex problems on page 70. The main thing, though, is that we pray for the right idea, for guidance, and for sanity. Because it sounds to me, from what I know, uh, is that the whole issue of sex and relationships, which need not necessarily be connected, but they often are, 
cause a tremendous amount of insanity. And uh, you don't believe that, huh? Some of you do believe that. Later this afternoon when we're talking about emotional sobriety, we'll be talking about the basic uh, situation that we find ourselves in. And that is, and I hate to come all the way from California to tell you this, but some of you might know it already, but I'd like to repeat it. This fellow in our group who says, there is nothing, I mean nothing, or nobody out there that can fix us. You know, is that kind of naked? <laughs> Pardon the pun. <laughs> Isn't it? You know, there's nothing or nobody out there that can fix us. So no matter what, we have to keep going back to this, this whole thing called uh, about an attitude, being with and being for our higher power. Uh, the recipe <laughs> that it gives us if we're having sex problems is that we get out of ourselves, like we talked about in, in step three, and we ask again what it is that we can contribute to life. What is it that we can give? And that I love the way it says it. It quiets the imperious urge when to yield would mean heartache. The imperious urge that, you know, we're, we're really uh, in there and we're involved and we're, our mind is totally absorbed and we're into another addiction or whatever it is, an obsession, and uh, our heads are going crazy. Our heads can race in millions and millions of directions. And so we have six promises and steps in step four. Two for resentment and two for fear and two for sex. And then we move into step five which clearly tells us what it is that we, we have to do. It says that we put our pride into our pockets. It's real hard for us to do this because we don't like doing it. And we try to illuminate. We try to be honest. Now, it used to offend my... Uh, feelings when they would say, you know, it's not honesty we're talking about here. We're talking about rigorous honesty. There's a big difference between honesty and rigorous honesty, I believe. The difference between being honest and telling the truth. And so we try to put our pride in our pocket and we illuminate. We clearly illuminate every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. And once we have taken this step with holding nothing, the first promise of step five is that we are delighted. Now, there are ten promises in step five, which I would like to tell you, if you don't already know them. And they're all on page 75. The first one is, we are delighted. And the second one is, we can look the world in the eye. What a wonderful promise for us, looking the world in the eye, because we never thought we could. We never thought that looking the world in the eye was uh, something that we would ever do, because uh, we were always so ashamed. And we were always so lacking in any kind of self-confidence. We can be alone and at perfect ease and peace. People like us, uh, we were afraid and upset when we were with other people, and we were the same when we were by ourselves. We just never could fit in our own skin. It's a wonderful feeling to fit in our own skin. I've been sitting in my own skin ever since I came here yesterday. I've been sitting in my own skin now for a good long time. It's really nice to come into a, um, a place where you, you're not all the time in and feel fitting in your own skin. It's a real great gift. The fourth promise is that our fears will fall from us. I always think of that as a, as a layer of skin, you know, old skin that I don't need, and it keeps falling from me. And the fifth promise is that we begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. The sixth one is we may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. And the feeling that the drink problem 
Sometimes I, I substitute that for the pink problem. Do any of you have a pink problem? You ever read those 20 questions for the alcoholic and, and substitute the word pink instead of drink? Have you ever been thinking alone? Has your thinking ever caused you to, you know, those 20 questions? But sometimes it's good to substitute think for drink because our thought process is what happens now. We may not have had a drink for a long time, but our, I, I bet we've had a little think. You know, just a little think. Yeah. It could set us up for a little drink. That's important to keep in our minds. And the eighth promise is we feel we're on the broad highway. I love this because uh, the book doesn't narrow God down to a little itty-bitty God or to a God of any kind of a religion. I love that. It doesn't have to be a Catholic God or a Presbyterian God or a Baptist God or a Lutheran God or a Jewish God. It, it, it's, a, it's a big God, broad and roomy and all-inclusive and never-exclusive. And... Um, we feel we're on the broad highway, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Well, that's a beautiful promise. We thank God from the bottom of our heart is the ninth promise that we know him better. You know, that we're, now we're, we're getting into some kind of conscious contact. And the tenth promise is we are building an arch through which we shall walk a free man or woman, person, at last. So we have ten wonderful promises as a result of step five, and we have six wonderful promises as a result of step four. What we're going to do now is we're going to take a look at steps four and five, the promises, in our groups again. But before we do that, I want to draw your attention to the affirmations that came out of step three. Here's a good one. Since God provides what I need, I have what I need. I enjoy peace of mind through letting go. I live with expectancy, but I have no expectations. You're expecting a miracle, knowing that God's going to do this because God's in charge. Now, what we're going to do with these affirmations is Teresa's going to type them up for us, and eventually, not today, but she's going to type them up for us, and they're going to be available to you so that you can use some of these for your own prayer meditation. So that when your head gets crazy, you can pick out one or two of those that feels good for you, that you could make your own. You know, like one that I use a lot is, I enjoy peace of mind. Because I tend to be hyperactive, as you can tell. I jump all over the place. And, you know, every once in a while I get, oh, real hyper. And I think, oh, God, my head's got to stop. And I have so many ideas. They're all good ideas. They're fun things. But I, I find myself getting very, you know, so I have to say, I enjoy peace of mind. I'm conscious of God's presence. I have to breathe slowly. I have to sit quietly. And I find these affirmations and the promises to be absolutely miraculous. And I never tried to do them with a group like this before. So I'm real pleased with what you're doing with this. You're formulating for yourselves a reprogramming for your minds. And I hope you'll use this. I really hope you'll use them. You wouldn't even need uh, us to type them up. You could find them in the book. But the fact that it's come out of the energy of this group, I think, is really significant. <coughs> and I think you could use that. So what I'm inviting you to do now is take a look at the steps, uh, promises of steps four and five, do the same procedure, share any promises that have come to your mind that, that um, you didn't hear of before, that you didn't know about before, anything in steps four and five that comes to mind when you share. But what I do want to ask is that you attend, if you can, to writing the affirmations 
at about 12.20. So if the group leaders, the facilitators could make sure that about 12.20 you write your affirmations so that we'll have affirmations for steps four and five. And Jim, where are you, Jim? Jim's in charge. He didn't know this until now, but he is. Jim's in charge of putting these affirmations all over the place and for making sure that Teresa gets these before the end of the day, okay? So can I have somebody help me to pass the, the promises of steps four and five? Thank you. This is the end of this session. Please use your